Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke, the 23rd chapter. Luke chapter 23. And we begin with verse 33. Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 33. May we bow together in prayer, please. Our Father, we humble ourselves in thy presence today, asking that the Lord would have his way, that everyone within the sound of our voice would hear a message from the cross. We would look to the cross and know and believe that Jesus is the hope, the only hope we have. May the Holy Spirit do his work, bringing encouragement to those who are discouraged, resolute decisions to those who are in the valley of decision, conviction to the unsaved, and the joy of the Lord to the saved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm reading from Luke 23, beginning with verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors who were hanged railed at him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us and us but the other answering rebuked him saying does not thou fear god seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds but this man hath done nothing amiss and he said jesus lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, He gave up the spirit. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things that were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all the acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. You remember the events of the last week in the life of Jesus. 
on Sunday, which corresponds to this particular Sunday, the world calls it Palm Sunday, was the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and they spread their palm branches and their clothing on the ground and said, Hosanna to the King who comes in the name of the Lord. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple, which again infuriated Caiaphas and Antipas. It infuriated all the religious leaders because they were all in cahoots with gaining financial gain from those who were the money changers. Also on Monday, Jesus healed the man in the temple. The Pharisees were warned. On Tuesday, the tribute money, and then Jesus saw them casting their money into the treasury, and while all of them brought their big gifts, Jesus saw one woman bring just a widow's mite, all she had, and she put it when nobody was looking in the offering. And Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to see this. All heaven has watched this. Everybody else has cast in of their abundance, but she hath given all she had. Which reminds us the Lord knows what we give to him. It is not so much the amount as it is the heart and the sacrifice of the gift. It was also on Monday, or, or rather Tuesday, that the Greeks visited Jesus. They came and said, sirs, we would see Jesus. And Andrew and Philip took him, took them to Jesus. And Jesus said, you've come in my finest hour. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. It was also on Tuesday that Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. This is found in Luke chapter 21 and in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. The Olivet Discourse was the, the, prob, the, the, the uh, prophecy concerning the second coming of Jesus. And in that wonderful passage, Jesus outlines all the things that will occur until he shall come the second time and the events of that last time. Now, there is disagreement among Christians as to what occurred on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. There are many who believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday. Thus, they call Friday Good Friday. And there's no real reason to have an argument with these folks because through the years, that one day called Good Friday has held before the world the fact that Christians believe that Jesus died on a cross for our sins. Now, very frankly, I have a hard time believing that he died on Friday on the cross. I do not argue with those who believe that. But Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. As Jonah was in the heart of the earth or in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so I believe Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. If you disagree or see it another way, that's fine. It just seems that that's more in line with what the Scripture says. Now the events of that last week remind us that this was also the Jewish Passover. 
And they were all there in Jerusalem, witnessing what was going on, what was happening. It was the Passover preparation, the Passover meal. You remember Jesus had met with his disciples for the last Passover. And then at the end of the Passover meal, he said, it is with desire that I have had this last meal with you. And then he took the cup and the bread. He broke the bread saying, this is my body which is broken for you. He took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant which is shed for the sins of the world. And when those disciples took that last supper in the upper room, Jesus was instituting something that has gone on all these 2,000 years. And when God's disciples meet across the world to observe the Lord's Supper, it is in remembrance of Christ's death until he come again. Shortly after the supper, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. And then Jesus took Peter, James, and John, went a little further, and they prayed, and then the Lord went by himself. And he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. If it would be possible, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Calvary and the cross were all settled in Gethsemane's garden that night when the Lord was willing to surrender and yield to the will of God. Later in the evening, they came as if with, to arrest a common criminal. They came with their sticks and torches and lances. and They came <clears throat> and they said, they came out, Jesus went out to meet them and they said, and he said, who do you seek? Why they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Now I want you to notice in the original, the he is not there. In your Bibles, it's in italics. Jesus said, I am. Now, the Jews who knew the oracles of God, the Old Testament, recognized immediately, I am was the phrase for the name of God. When Moses said to God, who shall I say has sent me to Pharaoh to say, let my people go? God said in the book of Exodus, God said, Moses, you go say, I am who I am. I am what I am. I am that I am has sent you. And so through the years, the phrase I am has stood for the name of God. And every time Jesus used that phrase in the New Testament, I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he was identifying himself with God, the great I am. And so when they came and said, and Jesus said, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am. And they fell down. And then they got back up. And they said a second time, he said a second time, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they arrested him. And they bound him. 
and they led him as a common prisoner up from Gethsemane through the eastern gate of Jerusalem, which today is sealed up by the temple over to the house of Annas and Caiaphas. And there they had a mock trial. They summoned the Sanhedrin early before the morning in the wee hours of the night, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. And they all came and in common consent agreed that he should be she should be executed but the Jewish court had no authority to carry out an execution and they summoned again the court again in the wee hours of the morning again they said he should be executed now this was illegal because those trials were to be separated by 24 hours at least and they were really separated by just a few hours and at dawn the next day they led Jesus to Pilate and Pilate gave him to Herod and Herod brought him back to Pilate and Pilate announced the death sentence now as we come to this place this morning we come to the crucifixion of Jesus the most ruthless crime in all the annals of ignoble history and yet the most glorious the most hopeful event of all time. The spot of Calvary is the center of all things. Here two eternities meet. The streams of ancient history converge here. And here the river of modern history takes its rise. The eyes of the patriarchs and prophets strain toward Calvary. And now the eyes of all generations and all races look back to it. Someone has said, Calvary is the end of all roads. The seeker of truth finds truth. The weary finds rest. The bereaved finds sympathy. The sinner finds forgiveness. Now what is Calvary? I want to give you four truths about Calvary this morning. Years I spent in, in, in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. What was Calvary? What occurred there? Why is it so important? Certainly, if there were no resurrection, Calvary would lose its meaning. But because there is a resurrection, Calvary is so filled with meaning that we dare not overlook it on this day when we focus upon it. So would you try to remember these four things? Number one, Calvary is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Calvary is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We do not have time this morning to look at all the scriptures, but if you'll turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, please. And will you look for a moment? I'm just going to bring you some isolated passages. Look in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. <clears throat> now recall that this is the Jewish Passover week. The Passover was that time when the Jews remembered what God did when he led them out of captivity in Egypt. And after a series of plagues, God said, Moses, you're to kill a paschal lamb 
and sprinkle the blood on the doorsteps of the Jewish homes. And when the death angel passes through, when he sees the blood, he will pass over. And if you look at Exodus 12, 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now this was the night of the Passover. The Jews were gathered in Jerusalem to observe the Jewish Passover, to remember God's wonderful deliverance of the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Jesus was the Paschal Lamb fulfilling what we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. If you go on a little bit further in chapter 25 and 26 and 27 and 28, you'll find in Exodus the unveiling of the Jewish tabernacle. This was called the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle in the wilderness was an establishment that gave the Jews a semblance of prophetic forgiveness. For in that tabernacle, there was a holy of holies. It was separated from the holy place with a veil. And beyond that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was shaped something like the communion table here at the front. And over the Ark of the Covenant was a gold plate estimated to be worth $60,000 in our marketable value today. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was a copy of the Ten Commandments. There was a golden pot of manna taken from the wilderness wanderings, and there was Aaron's rod that budded. Now that was very, very sacred to the Jews. And in the Ark, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, the priest would go once and again, once a year, beyond the veil, and would offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people, symbolizing the taking away of, the, of their sins. Now before he did that, he would kill an animal. If somebody would sin, they would bring an animal sacrifice, or a, 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 a dove or a pigeon sacrifice. And the priest would kill that animal, he would sprinkle some of the blood on the altar and he would sprinkle some of the blood on another animal and send that animal out in the wilderness signifying the taking away or the remission of their sins and the other blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat symbolizing the meeting between God and man for the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17 11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your sins, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for sin. Now if you'll turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse four. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Beginning in verse 10. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
and every priest that standeth daily ministering and offering often the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So I want to say to you this morning that Calvary was a fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And never again, never again would a priest have to go beyond the veil and offer a blood sacrifice for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from top to bottom. If, if men had done it, they would have rent it from the bottom to the top. But you recall, it was 12 noon on that dark day of the crucifixion. The sun had refused to shine. The earth was quaking. And a runner came running from the city of Jerusalem crying out, High priest, high priest, the veil of the temple is rent in the midst. Now what did he mean? That veil, that veiled off the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant was torn apart and never again would a priest have to go and offer a blood sacrifice for sin for Christ became our sin substitute. He was the mercy seat. He was the Paschal Lamb. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That's what happened at Calvary. Now secondly, Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. Sin is a terrible tyrant. In Romans chapter 3, Open your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And in Titus, the scripture says, justification and salvation is more than a mere sentimental forgiveness on the part of God. We are justified by His grace. Open your Bible to the book of Titus for just a moment. And look at Titus chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit which he shed upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is accomplished, that justification is accomplished only by the meeting and dealing with sin. The Bible says in Hebrews, every sin and every transgression must receive a just recompense of reward. You see, no sin is ignored. Every sin has to be punished. Every sin every boy and girl ever committed has to be punished. Every sin I've ever committed has to be punished. Every sin everyone here has ever committed has to be punished. 
Now, either we pay for our sins ourselves, or we accept what Christ did at Calvary. When Christ went to the cross, it was a coming to grips with sin. The Bible says, the wages of sin is death. The paycheck you draw at the end of life when you leave Jesus out is death, eternal separation from God in hell. Now every sin has to be paid for. God doesn't just ignore them. God doesn't just wink at them. Every sin has to be atoned for. Every sin has to be paid for. All of your sins, everyone listening to the radio this morning, everyone driving in a car this morning, everyone in this room this morning, everybody in the choir, the preacher in the pulpit, everyone, our sins have to be paid for. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was a coming to grips with sin. He who knew no sin actually became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And when Jesus died, he took the wages of our sin. Notice in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But in Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. And while all those people were around the cross, soldiers gambling for his garments, Christ on the cross, they were mocking him. They were belittling him. They spat on him. They whipped him. They put that crown of thorns on his brow. And while Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked in the face of God the Father, and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now listen, every curse word you've ever committed was involved in Jesus' prayer that day. Every filthy sin you've ever committed was involved in what Jesus prayed that day. All of our sins were atoned for in the cross. And when Christ died, he died once and for all. Jesus said in John chapter 12, Now is the judgment of this world. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Christ died once for all to pay for our sins. And Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. Now if you've been saved, your sins were all judged at the cross. That's a tremendous victory. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nobody who has ever been to the cross and received the atonement, received forgiveness, received Christ as Savior, nobody, nobody who has ever been to the cross and received Christ as Savior will go to hell because your sins were atoned for in Christ. That's the meaning of Calvary. He died for us. We deserve death. We deserve crucifixion, but Christ died in our place. Now, does that give us a liberty to sin? In Romans chapter 6, open your Bibles to Romans 6 for just a moment. And look at Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Another way of saying that is, 
What shall we then say? Shall we keep on sinning because we're saved by grace? God forbid the strongest Greek negative. In Greek it says, meganoito, meganoito, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, when we've received Christ as our Savior, Christ dwells in us. Our sins have been pardoned. He has forgiven us. But that doesn't give us a license to sin. After we're saved, every sin nailed to the cross hurts the heart of God. It's charged to Christ's account. But remember that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There's coming a day when God's people, the saved, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to decide whether we go to heaven or hell, that was decided at the cross. That was decided when we got saved. But at the judgment seat of Christ, everyone will receive the things he did in his body, while he was in his body. Now at another time we'll discuss that further. But suffice it to say now, just because our sins were paid for at Calvary does not give us a license to keep on sinning. Meganoito, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? At Calvary, Jesus met the sin of humanity head on, and Jesus took our sins. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, he who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. There was nothing we could do for ourselves. God had to do it all. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The songwriter wrote, could my tears forever flow, could my zeal no languor know, these for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now the third thing that I want to say about Calvary this morning, and I hope you remember these things, first of all, Calvary was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Secondly, Calvary was a coming to grips with sin. Thirdly, Calvary was the outpouring of God's love. Calvary was the outpouring of the love of God. How do we know? Look at Gethsemane. You see how the Lord in Gethsemane sweated were great drops of blood. Look at the trial. He opened not his mouth. Look at the cross. He could have called thousands of angels, but he died alone for you and me. He tasted death and hell. And I think one of the most 
hard, horrible things about the cross was the hell Jesus endured. Some have said, well, did Jesus actually descend into hell and pay the price suffering in hell for our sins? There's a creed called the Apostles' Creed that says that. But I think rather what the scripture teaches is that while Jesus was dying on the cross from the 12 o'clock noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, God turned his back on sin. And Jesus called out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he who never sinned suffered the abandonment of God, the separation from God. I don't believe anybody in this room has ever been separated from God totally. Now without Christ, you're away from God. You're an alien from God, an alien from the commonwealth of faith. But you've never been really separated from God. That's what hell is. Hell is the absence of God. Hell is an eternal separation from God. Jesus endured that on the cross from 12 o'clock noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. A coming to grips with sin, the outpouring of God's love. How much does God love? I wish I could paint a picture this morning of the love of God. It was all poured out at Calvary. I know, yes I know that he loves me so. He sits by the window as the long ages roll. Where in eon of time is the brush of his hand, yet the king of all kings seeks the love of each man. Should the light of the sun in time flicker and die and the earth wander off like a tramp through the sky, the darkness can't, find, can't hide me. He'll find me, I know, for men are his diamonds and he loves me so. Listen, he loves you this morning, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your shame, whatever your sin, whatever your failures, Whatever your victories, God loves you. And when Jesus went to the cross, it was the, it was the outpouring of God's love. And last of all, the thing I would lay on your heart is that Calvary is the surety of heaven. Calvary is the surety of heaven. While Jesus was dying on the cross, there was a thief next to him. And the thief on one side said, if you're really the Christ, come down and save yourself and us. The other, th the other thief sort of shamed that other one. And he said, do you not know that we deserve what we're getting? But this man has done nothing amiss. And then he called out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You remember what Jesus said? This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. How long does it take to get saved? Just like that. The thief on the cross, repentant. He didn't have time to join the church. He didn't have time to get baptized. He didn't have time to live a good life. He didn't have time to be good and to present God a good bunch of good works. He just came as a bankrupt and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord said, today 
thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, folks, there's no way to heaven but the way of the cross. The way of the cross leads home. There's no other way. If you've ever tried to come another way, you're still in your sins. You can't come the baptismal way. You can't come the church way. You can't come the good works way. You have to come the repentant way. Coming to the Lord with your sins and just saying, Lord, I need you. I call on you to forgive me and cleanse me and save me. And the moment you do that, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And he'll save you today if you'll let him. But you have to let him come in. And then after you ask him in, you need to confess him. Some of the Jews did not confess Christ because they were afraid of what the Pharisees They're afraid of what others will say. They're afraid to get out in front of publics. They're, they maybe are timid. They say, well, I can't walk down the aisle, or I can't take a stand, or I'm afraid of the water of baptism, or I'm afraid of this or that or the other. To trust Jesus means to trust Him for eternity. I cannot believe that it would be possible for you to put your trust and faith in Christ to forgive your sins and take you to heaven, and yet not trust Him to get you down an aisle. Not trust him to get you through some baptismal waters. Not trust him to help you serve him. You see, Christ wants us to confess him. There are some here today who have never confessed Christ as your Savior. Wouldn't it be a glorious day to come and say, by the grace of God, I want to confess Christ as my Savior today. Will you do it? May we bow together in prayer, please. Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed for just a moment, please, we're going to turn to a hymn in just a moment and sing it. But first, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, while our hearts are humbled before God, would you just reach out and say, Lord, I need you. I call on Jesus to forgive me and save me today. Would you do that? He will forgive. He will cleanse. He will be your Savior. And you can be his child forever and forever. Would you do that? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of studying the Word this morning. And we thank you for Calvary, for all that Christ did for us at the cross. May the Spirit of God move across heartstrings today and draw people to Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. May we stand, please. Number 312, come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. He will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. 312, will you turn there? We cannot be saved without the blood. But Jesus has already shed. Have you been covered by the blood? Have you come to Christ and trusted him as your savior?
If you have not, would you do it today? Would you just step out from where you are and come saying, by the grace of God, I want to confess Christ as my Savior and my Lord today. Will you do it? And if you're already saved,